What makes a good son? It's in vogue to talk about good parenting. In fact, there's a lot of debate in our society as to the very nature of parenting. What is the scope of parenting? How far does parental authority actually reach? Does it reach into the school systems? Does it reach into the doctor's office? Does it give parents the right to coach or guide their children in regard to their sexuality and identity? All of those are questions that we, especially those with a biblical worldview, must answer. It is interesting, however, that as often as we beg the question of what parenting, what makes for good parenting, we rarely, if ever, ask what makes a good child. We may complain about bad children, right? Disobedient or openly rebellious children. I'm sure none of you do that. But how often do you hear a conversation about what makes a good son or daughter? What makes a good child to their parents? Is that awkward to think about? Do we feel guilty placing the burden of being a good child to us on our children? Well, let me ask you the question this way. What are you raising your children for? Perhaps you're done raising your children, but what about your grandchildren? How are you seeking to encourage your grandchildren? How do you encourage your children to encourage their children? Are you raising them to be strong, independent, and successful in the world? Are you raising them to be self-reliant, disciplined, studious, healthy, wealthy, and wise? What are you raising your children for? As believers, we're charged with, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, raising our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We ought to raise them both in his discipline and his instruction. We must raise them with an awareness that they live in a world created by the Lord and ruled over by the Lord. We must raise them to live under his authority. To put it simply, we ought to raise our children to be good children who live in subjection to our God and Father. Now, we're not responsible for their faith, right? We're not ultimately responsible for raising children to be believers. We know that salvation does not work that way. However, we ought to parent them to be good children to us. Good children meaning obedient, not rebellious. We raise them to be good children to us so that they know how to be good children to their heavenly father. As we come back to the letter of Ephesians this morning, we've been looking at Paul's call to worship in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. He calls the church to worship God, to praise the glorious grace of the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Last week, we looked particularly at the Father's work in salvation. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the Father. He is the epitome of fatherliness. He gives good gifts to his children. He provides good things. From eternity past, he has blessed us by choosing us in Christ to be holy, to be a part of his family through adoption, and to be for the praise of his glory. This week we'll consider verses 7 through 10 of chapter 1. The emphasis in these verses is on the son. The father is a good father. He gives good gifts to his children. The son is the good son. He is, in fact, the beloved son. He is beloved by God for his obedience to the father. And we are to praise God for the sacrifice of his beloved son because in him we have both a redeemer and a ruler. Well, let's take a look again at our section, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Again, is one long sentence. I'll read that sentence, but our focus for this morning is going to be on verses 7 through 10. Let's read together. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us, In all wisdom and insight, 
making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the whole promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Father, thank you for your word, your word which sanctifies us. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, let's look at that first point. We praise God for the redemption that we have in the Son. Look again at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Well, the in him refers back to the end of verse 6, where Christ is called the beloved. I mentioned in the introduction of the series a few weeks ago that we would be reminded throughout this section that all of the blessing that we have from God the Father comes to us only in Christ. That's a repeated refrain throughout this section, in him. It's said a number of different ways, in him, in Christ. There's no other way, in other words, to receive the blessing of God apart from Christ. In verse 6, however, we don't see in him, but we see in the beloved. Slightly different focus. Jesus is referred to here as the beloved. At the end of our message last week, we were reminded that all of our salvation is not primarily about us, but about God. It's really about God making much of himself, pursuing his own glory, and ultimately doing so in his son. And that makes sense, right? God should pursue his own glory. If you think about it logically, if God is perfect in every way, then he has to perfectly evaluate everything, right? And if he perfectly evaluates everything, that means that he should give honor to those to whom honor is due, perfectly. And if he is the most perfect being, if he is worthy of honor and glory and majesty, then he ought to pursue his own glory above all other things. Well, God the Father aims to glorify himself through God the Son. I've mentioned also before that we get a glimpse into the nature of the relationship between Father and Son in this passage of Scripture. Again, we've already looked at the fatherliness of the Father last week. Now we're going to look at the sonship of the Son. I thought sonliness sounded a little strange, so. Well, Jesus is referred to here as the beloved son of God. Why is that? Well, we know that he is the beloved son of God. He is beloved by God. God himself testified to this. When Jesus came into the world, when the word of God became flesh, Luke three twenty two, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. We have that testimony in every gospel. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter, James, and John went away with Jesus to pray, it says in Matthew 17, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light, referring to Jesus. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter, always the one quick to speak up with you know, bright ideas, said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And Peter was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
I mean, you have Moses and Elijah standing there, right? Two great spiritual giants. And anyone in Israel would have probably fallen over to be able to hear and see Moses and Elijah. But the voice of God from heaven says, it's not Moses and Elijah who you should be in awe of. It is my beloved son. We noted Jesus' words last week from John 3.35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. But even if God hadn't testified from heaven, the works that Jesus did in the name of the father testified to his status as the beloved son of God. John 5, again, after Jesus healed on the Sabbath, I referenced this passage, I think, last week also. John 5, 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He was healing on the Sabbath, and so they were angry with him about it. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. So he ratchets it up a little bit further. Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They knew what he meant. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Then he goes on from there. Jesus did the works of his father. What makes him the beloved son? He did what his father did. Everything that he saw the father doing, he did likewise. He walked in his father's footsteps. The father gave Jesus authority because he knew that the son would walk in his footsteps and handle that authority well. The father gave Jesus the ability to give life because he knew that the the son would walk in his footsteps and handle that gift well. The father loves the son and shows him all that he is doing because he knows that his son will perfectly and obediently follow When he encountered the woman at the well after having shared the truth with her, the disciples returned and attempted to give him food because he hadn't eaten for some time. Do you remember what he said? John 4, 24, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That passage gets me every time. (laughs) Jesus was tired. He was hungry. He was weary. He just spent some time ministering to someone trying to get through their thick skull that he's the Messiah and sending them off to deliver that message. And he had a break, right? I mean, he's just sitting there. The woman has run off. She's going to get the people from the town. He had a break. He had an opportunity to eat when the disciples came back, but he said, I'm good. I've been filled up. I've been strengthened. I've been refreshed by doing the will of my father. Other similar passages, John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 7.16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. John 8.29, he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus is the good son. He sought to do what the father did. He sought to do his will. He sought to teach what the father would have him teach. He aimed in life to do only what pleased his father. But it's more than that. We know that Jesus laid down his life in obedience for the father. In John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me 
because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. The father gave some sheep to him and charged him to lay down his life for the sheep, and he does that in perfect obedience. He lays down his life, and he takes his life back up again. He says, this charge I've been given by my father. The father loves the son. Again, John 3.35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. Why would the father give all things to the son? Because he loves him. Why does the father love him? Because the son perfectly obeys all that the father commands. From eternity past to his incarnation, even to this very day, the son perfectly obeys his heavenly father. In his incarnation, Jesus kept the whole law of God. If you remember, he even challenged the religious establishment who often opposed him in his teaching. Those who wanted to stone him because he made himself equal with God, to them he said in John 8, 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? And none of them had a word to say. He says, you know the law. Which of you convicts me of sin? Which of you convicts me of breaking the law? And no one had a word to say because he kept the law. Always. He obeyed perfectly. Paul says in Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's the end of the law because he perfectly kept it. He perfectly fulfilled the law. Jesus is the son of God, but he's not just the son of God. He is the good son. He is the beloved son. Precisely because he perfectly imitated and perfectly obeyed his father. He was obedient even to the point of death, Paul says in Philippians 2. Paul made the point there that it is for this reason that God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because Jesus obeyed his father to death. That pleased him. In the context of our salvation, this means that God has given us the best. He didn't send a second-rate Savior. He sent his beloved Son to die for us. We've all gotten gifts from people from time to time, right, and wondered what they were thinking <laughs> when they sent us that particular gift, like if they knew us at all. Um, conversely, we've received some gifts that have so touched our hearts because it was either exactly the thing we wanted or it was the thing that we didn't know we wanted, but they knew. Well, God sent the best. He sent his best for us. He sent his beloved son, his perfectly obedient son. He sent him to die for you. We are now beloved of God through faith in Jesus, John 16, 27. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I have come from God. And just by way of reminder, we cannot know the love of God in any other way. Christianity is an exclusive faith. Jesus Christ is the only Savior the only beloved son, the only one in whom we may be loved by God. We cannot know the love of God apart from faith in the beloved, obedient son of God, Jesus Christ. And we can't compromise on that truth. There's no other figure more central significance to what God is doing in the world than Jesus because he is alone, the only begotten son of God, and he alone is the beloved son of God. No one else can claim that. No one else can say that they have perfectly obeyed the will of God, their father. No other human being in the history of humanity, religious figure or otherwise, can claim that. But Jesus did. Jesus claimed that with his own lips. The apostles who knew him claimed it. God the father declared from heaven that he is the beloved son in whom he is well pleased. There is no other.
Back to our text again, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We have redemption in him, in the beloved son, in the obedient son of God. Well, what is redemption? The word translated redemption means to release from captivity. A debt is owed which cannot be paid by the debtor, and this leads to some form of captivity. The debt owed is subsequently paid, thus securing release for the captive. Paul further qualifies the term in our text. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses. Redemption is accomplished through the blood of Christ. The debt is paid through the blood of Christ. Thus, captives are released. And the release from captivity is, is, is the forgiveness of trespasses. So reasoning backward, the debt owed has to do with our trespasses. has to do with our sin. We have trespassed, meaning we have overstepped boundaries that were set in the context of sin and salvation. The boundaries set are boundaries set by God and his law, his will. God has a law. He has set boundaries. We have misstepped. The word translated trespass here suggests a willful act of disobedience. In other words, we know what the boundaries are, but we don't care. We're in rebellion against God. We do what we want. We step over the line regardless. But because we have stepped over the line, because we have trespassed beyond the boundary lines, we've incurred a debt. And we cannot fully pay the penalty of that debt. And thus we are subject to captivity. We've been thrown into prison. And we will be in prison. We will suffer. And we will endure the payment of that debt until the debt is satisfied. The payment for the debt is life, right? Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. Your life is owed as a result of your trespasses. Because you have transgressed, you have misstepped, you have rebelled against God, you owe him your life. Your, your life is forfeit. As I pointed out last time, since the offended party is owed eternal honor, the debt incurred has eternal consequences. In scripture, when we read of eternal judgment, we see a repeated refrain. The worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's an eternal judgment. It's eternal because God is eternal. Because you have offended an eternal God, an infinitely honorable person. However, again, as the text states, the debt has been paid. <clears throat> in him, in the beloved son, we have redemption. Our debt has been paid, and we have been released from our obligations. The hour there, and following with the rest of the passage, is the believer. In the context, it is the elect. It is those who have been chosen by God and given to his son. It is the church. We have redemption. Our sins have been forgiven. How do we go from being chosen from before the foundation of the world? How do we go from being chosen for, predestined for adoption as sons to being sons of God? It is through the blood of Jesus. It is by the payment of the debt that we owe. Well, why his blood? We've already explained that, I think. Again, who is Jesus? He is the beloved son of God. What makes him beloved? He always obeyed his father. He kept the law perfectly. Everything the Father showed him, he did. Everything the Father commanded from eternity past to his incarnation, he perfectly obeyed. Even the fact that the Father charged him with laying down his life for his sheep, he did that. The Son, the beloved Son, perfectly obeyed his Father. His life, Jesus' life, was worthy of blessing. His life, Jesus' life, is worthy of the favor of God. His life, Jesus' life, has infinite value. His life is unblemished, untainted by sin. There is no hint of sin. There's no darkness in him at all. He perfectly obeyed his Father in every way, every opportunity, at every turn, every thought, every word, every action was done in obedience to the Father. His life earned life and blessing and glory and honor. 
This is what made him the perfect substitute for humanity. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John says in John 1, 36. Now, the Old Testament system foreshadowed this, right? A blood sacrifice was required, Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you, given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by life. And so God is explaining there that because life is in the blood, the life of a living creature is in its blood, it lives as it has blood flowing through its body. He gave them those animal sacrifices to make atonement for their sins, to cover over their sins. And as they shed the blood of those animal sacrifices, a life for a life, their sins were at least temporarily forgiven. There was a whole ceremony, one day of the year, on the Day of Atonement, by which two goats were set apart. And the imagery here is beautiful. I mean, there was one goat that was used. Well, I guess the imagery of a sacrifice is not so beautiful, but one goat was used as a sacrifice. Its blood was shed. Its life was poured out, again, for the sins of the people. And another goat was set apart. Ceremonially, the, the high priest would lay his hands on this second goat, and they would send the goat out of the camp, away from the people. And so the blood would be shed, the death, the, the death that was required would be satisfied, and also ceremonially, their sins would be taken away from the camp. So you had both parts of that sacrifice that were set up. And so you had that sacrifice and you had many other aspects of a sacrifice that were set up in the Old Testament, they were all foreshadowing this one sacrifice that would be made by the beloved Son of God. And the writer of Hebrews really focuses in on that in Hebrews chapter 10. He says there in Hebrews chapter 10, and you can take note of this, this passage, chapter 10, I'm going to read a number of verses here. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year by year make perfect those who draw near. And that makes sense, right? You can't, you can't come to an understanding of being perfected by God if you have to continue to make sacrifices every single year. And not just every year, but there were other sacrifices that were made throughout the year, right? And so that was a reminder to them that things were not quite right still. He says, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Verse four, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. Bulls and goats, they're animals. This was a temporary thing. Consequently, he says in verse five, when Christ came into the world, he says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Verse 7, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But Christ, when he'd offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What's the point? Jesus' life was perfect. And because he had a perfect life, his life, his blood shed, poured out to death, was fully sufficient to be offered, not year after year, but only once. His blood shed on the cross was sufficient to sanctify for all time those who come to him by faith. 
Redemption was accomplished by the blood of Jesus. Perfection was accomplished by the sacrifice and blood of Jesus. When Christ died on the cross, he said what? It is finished. That's an accounting term. The bill is paid in full. The debt has been satisfied. It is finished. But again, it doesn't stop there. Back to that text in Hebrews. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Again, think about Ezekiel 36 that we read earlier. Then he says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. Now, there are two words in theology that usually accompany a discussion of redemption. The first is propitiation. When you hear propitiation, think satisfaction. Wrath must be satisfied. A debt must be satisfied. 1 John 2.2, he is the propitiation for our sins. He has satisfied the requirement for our sins. He died. His blood was shed. The wrath of God is satisfied in Christ. The second term you hear is expiation. Expiation has to do with the removal of guilt. Those last verses in Hebrews, after after perfection is accomplished by the sacrifice of Christ, states very clearly that this new covenant will result in God's intentional choice to remember our sins and lawless deeds no more. So yes, the debt is paid by the blood of Christ, his life for our life. Yes, perfection is accomplished by that sacrifice. There's a satisfaction of God's wrath. But it's more than that. It's not just that our sins are forgiven. It's that they're also forgotten. There's no further remembrance of sin. It is completely taken away in Christ. Now, we've all been there before, right? We've offended someone. And they may say to you, I'll forgive you, but I won't forget. Or they may claim to forgive you, but you know that they didn't forget because they're always bringing it back up later. Right? But in this case... The debt that was paid, the life that was given was sufficient not only to completely erase our sin, to take it away, but that it would never be considered again. Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Our sins are forgiven. Our sins are forgotten. They are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. They will never be considered by God again. Why is redemption accomplished through the blood of Christ? Because he's the beloved son of God. He's beloved because he always obeyed his father. Because he always obeyed his father, he earned life. He earned blessing and favor with the father. He earned the right to be given all things by his father. His life is precious. It has eternal value because of his perfect obedience And as life is in the blood, so his shed blood was sufficient as payment for the eternal debt that we owed because of our sin. No one else would do. The only begotten son of God is the only one whose blood was sufficient to completely take away our sin. Let me ask you, Jesus is the beloved son of God. Do you praise him for that? I've said this time and time again since we started this series, but again, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is a call to worship. As we think about what worship is, as you come to service every Sunday morning, do you come here and just read off words on a page? Or do you come here and think about the words that you're reading as you're singing hymns, songs and hymns and spiritual songs? And do you in your heart and with your lips worship the true and living God who sent his only begotten son, his beloved son, his obedient son to die for you? Dirty, rotten, stinking sinners that we are. Totally unworthy. But he shed his blood. He poured out his life unto death for you. Do you worship him for that? Do you praise him for that with that in mind? Again, Jesus is the beloved son of God. Do you seek him because of that? Think about that for a minute. The beloved son of God, he knows obedience. He was obedient to the point of death. 
Believer, do you ever struggle with obedience? Do you ever struggle with obeying God? You know what you ought to do? Either you want to do something else or you simply don't feel like it. That streak of willful disobedience still tugging at your heart. Who can you turn to who knows perfect obedience? Who can you turn to who delights to do the will of his father in heaven? Who said it is my food and drink to do his will? Do you desire that same attitude, the, the attitude that he had to do the will of his father and to feast upon the enjoyment of doing his will as we feast upon food? Who else can we turn to if we need help with obeying the will of God than the perfect, beloved son of God? Amen. What about temptation? Again, Jesus, the son of God, was tempted in every respect as we are yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. He endured temptation all the way to the end. When we're tempted, we tend to give in, right? Or else we try to run, which it's okay. If you can flee from temptation, do it. But Jesus endured. He endured every temptation and unwaveringly chose to obey his father in spite of it. Do we need that sort of grace? Do you need that sort of spiritual integrity, spiritual strength to say no to sin and yes to the will of God? Who else will you go to than the beloved son of God who always obeyed his father? Hebrews 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, weigh aside every, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners, such hostility against himself so that you will not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him. Consider Jesus, the beloved son of God. Draw near to him. Look to him. Set your affections on him. Have the mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, the beloved son of God. Praise him. Cling to him. And back to our text. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. And don't miss this point. We have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses. And this is all according to the riches of his grace. God is rich in grace. You cannot have a conversation about salvation without mentioning grace. Grace is favor, unmerited favor. I like this description. One author said, when God gives in accordance with the riches of his grace, he gives from his unlimited treasure house. Grace is unmerited favor, an overflowing abundance of unmerited love, inexhaustible in God and freely accessible through Christ, end quote. Paul says that the beloved son of God providing his blood for our redemption, our forgiveness, that is all about grace. It's all about God's grace lavished upon us richly. Once again, we have to reconsider our definition of the term blessing. What does it mean to be blessed by God? The measure of the blessing of God is not found anywhere other than this term grace. It's not in the kind of job you have. It's not in the number of big screen televisions in your home. It's not in the size of your bank account. It's not in your perfect health. The measure of God's grace is seen in his unlimited favor poured out on us richly in Jesus Christ. Again, back to our text, we are to praise God for Jesus, the beloved son of God, who is our redeemer. We also see in verses eight through 10 that Jesus, the beloved son of God, is God's chosen ruler. He is redeemer and ruler. Again, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time 
to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God from eternity past has given some to his son, but what about everyone else? What about those who have not bowed the knee? What about the rest of the created order? What is God's plan for them? Again, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. God has a plan. The terms that he used here, it is his will, his purpose, what he has set forth in Christ. It's a plan for the fullness of time. This plan God has made known to us in Christ. He's made it known to us with all wisdom and insight. The wisdom and insight is in fact a part of the grace that God has lavished on us. In other words, the grace of God is lavished on us through our redemption in Christ and through his choice to peel back the curtain, so to speak, to unveil his purposes, his plans for the Lord Jesus. The sovereign of the universe has taken us into his confidence. He's sharing state secrets with us. The president is opening sealed top secret documents that are only reserved for restricted eyes, and he's unveiling them to us, common citizens. God is doing that for us. He's doing that for those of us who are in the beloved, those who are recipients of his grace. Well, what is his plan? Again, verse 10. His plan, his purpose, his will is to unite all things in him, in Jesus, in the beloved son, things in heaven and things on earth. The big picture plan of God is not just about our salvation, in other words. God didn't send his beloved son into the world only for our salvation. He sent him for a greater purpose. And we're kind of coming full circle here with where we started. The desire is to unite all things in him. The word for unite there is elsewhere translated to sum up or to unify. That's really the idea. The idea is that all things would be unified under the headship or rule of Jesus. And we read Psalm 2 earlier, right? This picture of Psalm 2 captures a prophetic expectation for the future regarding the nations. Again, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they're, they're wanting to, to reject the rule of God over them. We know that the nations have rejected largely any semblance of rule that the creator would have over them. They've rejected him and they've rejected his anointed. His anointed in the passage, the one whom he's chosen. He is the king who's been established in Zion, according to Psalm 2. He is the son. He is the one whom God has given the nations as an inheritance. He says, ask of me and I will give to you the nations as your inheritance. The anointed, the son, the one who will break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, the anointed, the king in Psalm 2, the son of God, He is the Lord. He is the ruler. He is the one sent into the world to take possession of the nations, to humble them, to subjugate them under his will. And they are warned in that passage. The nations and kings of the earth are warned. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. In other translations, it says do homage to the son. And the picture here is of uh, a subordinate coming and kissing the, the ring of a king. Bowing before him, showing obedience to him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, in the Son. Or whether you take Psalm 2 as looking forward to a future event or simply a poetic expression of mankind's common rebellion and God's future subjugation of the nations, the point is the same. The nations of the earth have rejected his rule, but God is not dismayed because he has a plan. He has a purpose. His plan involves sending his son to humble the nations. His plan involves sending his anointed one, his chosen one, his king, his appointed king to rule over the nations. Again, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. John 3.35 Jesus confessed before his ascension, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We read Colossians 1 before. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. 
He is before all things. In him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In everything. That he would have first place. And through him to reconcile to himself all things where the things in heaven on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul, reflecting upon the significance of the resurrection of Christ, in 1 Corinthians 15 says this, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each one in this order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to him. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. In other words, all of created history, all of human history is headed to that point. To the son Jesus ruling over all, subjecting all under himself and ultimately subjecting all things to his father. Creation itself is said to be groaning, waiting for this final day. That's Romans 8. All of human history is headed to that point. In Habakkuk 2, I think it says that that there is coming a day when the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. We're looking forward to that day. This has been the plan of God from the beginning. This has been the purpose of God from the beginning. That Jesus, the beloved son of God, would rule over all, that he might bring all things, things in heaven and on earth, into subjection to himself. The father has given them this charge, and he's confident that the son will execute it. But what are the implications of this truth? God's plan to have all things ultimately subjected to Jesus. Jesus would be Lord over all. First of all, we have something to look forward to. Because the fact of the matter is, this is a promise that God will make everything right that is wrong in the world. Psalm 67, verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Jesus is a righteous ruler. He will always obey the will of his father. He will execute his rule as Lord over all, as an obedient son. So we have that to look forward to. Jesus ruling and reigning over all. When we look around at the world today, again, nations waging war against nations, unruly and Unpredictable dictators proclaiming their nuclear prowess. The transition from a queen of 70 years to a king in a neighboring nation. Remembering 9-11, a tragic time of unprecedented terrorism in our own nation. The staggering speed, the moral decline of our nation. Thinking of these things can make us sick. I mean, we have our daily struggles, right? Struggles against sin. We have sickness ourselves and our family. We can despair. We're all groaning. We're all looking forward to something better. Well, God has a plan for that. And this is the plan. The plan is for Jesus to come back and to make everything right that is wrong with this world. According to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That time there will be peace that flows like a river. No more sorrow, no more sadness, no more sickness, no more death, no more wars and rumors of wars, only peace. And all is a result of the rule of his son. Second, this truth should make us feel small. I think often we feel as though we should come to church and have much made of us. We feel like we should come to church and walk out feeling good about ourselves and feeling affirmed by God. There is much that's been affirmed in this text for us this morning. We have been redeemed. God is rich in grace toward us. He sent us his best. He sent his beloved son, the one whom he knew would get the job done. 
It is his faithfulness, his obedience to the Father that's led to our redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses, forgiven and forgotten. God planned that from all eternity that this would happen. But again, the reality is that God didn't just send his son for us. He sent his son because he desires to complete the work of redemption throughout the entire cosmos. He desires to bring all things into subjection to himself, to unite all things in Christ for his glory. Because again, he is worth it. Jesus is the big idea of God's plan, in other words. Jesus being glorified as redeemer and ruler is the big idea. I love this quote from John Piper. He says, we are all starved for the glory of God, not self. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go? Because there's greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than in beholding self. When we go to the Grand Canyon, we don't go and say, wow, I'm a really great person. (laughs) We don't go there to feel good about ourselves. Neither should we come before the true and living God to feel good about ourselves. We come before the true and living God because he is worth it. And the fact that God's plan is for Jesus to be glorified as Lord, as King, as ruler over all, ought to underscore that point. He is worth it. He is worthy of glory and honor and majesty and praise from us. Remember again, this section is a call to worship. We are called to praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of the sacrifice of his son, His son, his beloved son, is both redeemer and ruler over all. It is to him who alone belongs to glory. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the reminder of who Jesus is. He is the beloved son of God. As the beloved son of God, as the only begotten one. He came into the world to redeem those whom you gave to him as a possession. As he has redeemed us, as he has set apart, you have made known to us the mystery of your will. And the will, your will, your plan, your desire is for Jesus Christ to rule and reign over all as Lord. And he deserves that. He alone is worthy of that as the beloved son, as the perfectly obedient son who always sought to do your will. He is worthy of that title as Lord over all. As we go this week, we pray, I pray that you'd remind us of this truth and help us to live like Jesus is worth it. And help us to live grateful that we are forever his. In Christ's name, amen.